In ancient times, stories used two general concepts, logos and mythos, to convey meaning to their readers. It's true of stories outside the Bible, but it's also true of the stories we find within the Bible as well. Today, we'll look further into the ancient understanding of logos and mythos and how they are presented in Acts chapter 12. Welcome to episode 55, The Logos and the Mythos. This is Greg Hall, and thanks for coming back to another episode of the Rethinking Scripture podcast. And before we get into our study today, got a couple updates for you. It's been a while since we've talked about the All America Listener Challenge. This is something I started at the end of last year, and it's my attempt to get the entirety of the United States map covered with at least one listener from every state. I'm keeping track of it at RethinkingScripture.com right there on the opening page. And I've got some great news because in the last few weeks, we have added one, two, three, four. We've added five new states to the map. And those states include Arizona, Kentucky, New Hampshire, Mississippi, and Missouri. So welcome on board, all of those listeners in those new states and places like Clifton Park, New York, Somerville, South Carolina, Paris, Tennessee, and Clayton, Oklahoma. You all showed up on the map just recently, and that just says one thing, that word's getting out. People are talking and telling their friends about the podcast, and I really appreciate that. One of the other updates I wanted to give before we get into the episode is uh, regarding my Homes and Help initiative. I introduced the initiative back in episode 45, so if you haven't had a chance to listen to that particular episode, I'd encourage you to go back and do that. But this last week, while at a conference, I met some people that work at 413 Strong. It's an organization in Nashville, Tennessee, and 413 is an obvious reference to Philippians 413. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And they provide training, skill development, and job placement for men who are at risk. So either those who are living on the streets or recently released from prison, they have a six to eight month residential program where if you graduate from it, you will have completed the following things. Four months of continuous employment, court fees and fines paid off driver's license acquired or reinstated, purchase a car and insurance with cash, and establish a $1,500 emergency fund. And let me just say, without being snarky at all, in a post-pandemic world, uh, most of us would be doing pretty good if we could check off all of those things from our list. But this organization, 413 Strong, has a residential program, as I said, and they come alongside these men who are at risk. They give them a home and help. And that's exactly what the Homes and Help Initiative is all about. So I'll put a link in the show notes to their website. And I've also added them to the Homes and Help Initiative list on the Rethinking Scripture and Rethinking Rest websites. So those are my two updates. Good job spreading the word about the listener challenge. And we've added another organization to the Homes and Help Initiative. So to introduce today's episode, I need to tell you that I used to be an English teacher. <laughs> I got an English minor in my undergraduate degree, uh, but that's not really where I learned the language. My mom, who also used to be a teacher, was relentless with us at home in regards to proper usage of the English 
language. She taught us all the reasons that a sentence like, me and Bob went to the store today, is dreadful to have to listen to. And for those that don't know, maybe you're wondering what's wrong with that sentence. The first person pronoun I should be used when it's in the subject of a sentence, not me. And for goodness sakes, always list yourself last in a list of people. So let's turn that sentence around and say it the right way. Bob and I went to the store today. Now, doesn't that just sound better? And it wasn't just grammar usage. Uh, Along with the grammar usage, my mom continues to teach me how strange language is. And here's one of my favorite examples that she taught me growing up. It's the word anxiety. Anxiety is a crazy word the way we use it in English. So first, there's the noun anxiety, and that's just become a hot word in today's culture. Lots of people with anxiety. And you know what I mean when I say anxiety in that sense. Webster says this, uh, number 1A, painful or apprehensive uneasiness of mind, usually over an impending or anticipated ill. And Webster's, in their secondary definition for anxiety, says it's an abnormal and overwhelming sense of apprehension and fear, often marked by physiological signs like sweating and tension and increased pulse. So I think we get the word anxiety. But when we turn the noun into an adjective in our English culture and we say anxious, this is where everything gets turned upside down. Because people often say that they're anxious about something when they're actually excited to go do it. And in that sense, it's the exact opposite of what the noun actually means. Here, let me just read Webster's definition for anxious, the adjective. Characterized by extreme uneasiness of mind or brooding fear about some contingency. So if I'm anxious, the number one way that this adjective should be used is in the sense of the noun definition of being fearful about something. Number two for the adjective, characterized by or resulting from or causing anxiety. That doesn't help very much. So let's go to number three and just see if we can get the full sense of the word here. Ardently or earnestly wishing. So let me just ask this question. How is it that a word within the same culture at the same time can have exactly opposite meanings? If I was to say I'm anxious about the party this afternoon, you would have absolutely no idea how I feel about the party, whether I'm fearful about some element of the party or if I'm just eager to go to the party. Anxiety. That's just one example of how crazy language can be in the same culture and at the same time. As we will see today, though, things get much more complicated when they are cross-cultural and separated by thousands of years. So along those same lines, so words can have different meanings. There are a couple of ancient concepts that are very similar to that example I gave. They have meanings within their original culture, but they have different meanings in our modern culture. And getting back to their original meanings will help us understand some of the text in Acts chapter 12, our chapter for today. So we will get into the text a bit, but first, a little history lesson regarding the use of logos 
and mythos. Or if you're really particular about how to say those words, you could say it logos and mythos. And the way you've learned to say those words is probably highly dependent upon who your pastor's Greek teacher was. I prefer to say logos and mythos, so that's what you'll hear from me for the remainder of the episode. So let's just start with the word logos. It is a word full of meaning for uh, evangelical believers, because if you've done any word study at all in the Greek language, this is maybe one of them. So let's just start with uh, some modern misconceptions about the word logos. To modern day ears, especially those ears that are within the evangelical church culture, logos only means really one or two things. And it's not necessarily the ancient understanding of this term. And that's because in John 1.1, John the author identifies Jesus as the word. That's the English translation. But the Greek word behind that translation is logos. And we know John is referring to the word or the logos as Jesus because he tells us so in John chapter 1. And so most of our modern day context where the word logos in the evangelical world, people would just say, oh, the logos, that's Jesus, which is totally true. Unless it also could mean the word like the Bible, the content of the Bible. So within the church, even, we've got a kind of a dual meaning where the logos could be the word. He is the word. Jesus is the word. But also the Bible is the word. The Bible is the logos. But what if I suggested there is a broader cultural meaning at play, an ancient meaning? Again, visiting Webster's Dictionary for the word logos says it's a noun from the Greek. And it describes Logos as the divine wisdom manifest in the creation, in government, and in the redemption of the world. And it often identifies with the second person of the Trinity. So that kind of encapsulates part of what we understand as evangelicals, but it also adds this idea that the Logos is divine wisdom that is just manifest in creation. And that gets explained in the second definition, where Webster's says that logos is reason, that in ancient Greek philosophy is the controlling principle of the universe. So what I'm going to suggest is that by the time the authors of the New Testament came around, when John decides to use this term logos, he is using it within an ancient philosophic and cultural context that is largely not understood by our modern context. So let's go back into the history of the word logos. And for this, I'm going to read from Kittle's work in Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And he says, from an ancient Greek concept, this word logos really has kind of two sides to it. In one side, it means speech or revelation as the clarification or explanation of something. It's it's in the context of a thing in terms of its law or its meaning or its basis and structure. And on the other side of this, kind of a second meaning for this word logos, it involves a metaphysical reality, a, like a primary law of things. And it's that law that makes clarification possible and determines life. So, if that's what logos means in an ancient context, how did we get to that? Where did that even come from? And I'm going to suggest that it started with 
a philosopher by the name of Heraclitus. From a philosophical mindset, he began to talk about that which constitutes the being of both cosmos and humanity. And he suggested that the logos was that reason or that thing that connects humanity with the cosmos and with deity. And he suggested that as the law or principle of things, this logos, it transcends human opinion and it grounds the psyche. And while Heraclitus may have introduced the basis of this idea of the logos, subsequent philosophers further developed the idea and gave it different aspects. So for instance, Socrates and Plato, who followed Heraclitus, they further developed the idea of logos and they suggested that logos has the power to establish fellowship by way of agreement in the reality of things. Presupposed is a harmony between the logos of reason and the logos or the reasoning of reality. And if that's just uh, confusing mumbo jumbo to you, listen to the way this is phrased. The idea of logos from Socrates and Plato, they suggested that truth, and that's a capital T truth, all-knowing truth is achieved when the Logos interprets things. The Logos makes philosophy possible because it is linked to being. They suggested that this idea interrelates thought and word and matter and nature and being and the norm. And following Socrates and Plato, there's another philosopher by the name of Aristotle. Maybe you've heard of him. For Aristotle, the Logos is the source of human virtue and piety. So the progression of the word, introduction by Heraclitus, further defined and nuanced by Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, all of this is happening in the intertestamental period. So by the close of the Old Testament, these guys hadn't shown up yet. And in that intertestamental 500 years period of time, all of this Greek thought is being introduced and begins to pervade the culture and the climate of the day. And it gets so mingled with the culture that by the time Jesus shows up, Lagos is infused within the Hellenism of the day. That's how the Greek culture has influenced even those in the Jewish society. And within Hellenism, you might have heard a term Stoicism. And it's within Stoicism that the nuance of the Logos has come to have been known as the expression of the ordered and oriented nature of the cosmos. And it's within Hellenism that it can now be equated with God and with the cosmic power of reason, of which the material world is a vast unfolding. So, Prior to the first century AD, when the events of the New Testament take place, Plato and these other philosophers had discussed the existence of a non-physical divine reason implicit in the cosmos, which gives it order, form, and meaning. And the title they gave to this philosophic concept was the Logos. And when John pulled that word out of his hat and included it in the opening lines of his gospel message, you can be assured that he understood the full context within his culture of the use and meaning of that word. And then he began to place that concept within a Christian worldview to help explain the life and ministry of Jesus. 
So that's one of the words, logos. The other concept that we're going to be talking about just briefly here is mythos. And in today's culture, it certainly has a fixed meaning, a myth. But in an ancient context, it is simply a synonym for story. It can be something fictitious, but that isn't necessary. In fact, most of the time in an ancient context, it is assumed to have happened in reality. And ancient writings use both the logos, uh, the reason, and the mythos to tell their story. It was a common thing within an ancient context. So one of the hurdles to this is just our modern understanding of the word myth. But listen to what Webster says about our modern word myth. It's a noun, and it discusses usually a traditional story of historical events that serves to unfold part of the worldview of a people or how they explain a practice or a belief or a natural phenomenon. So a myth can also mean a popular belief or tradition that has grown up around something or someone, especially one embodying the ideals and institutions of a society or segment of a society. And then as we get down to the to be meaning, it can be an unfounded or a false notion. Or number three, a person or thing having only an imaginary or unverifiable existence. It's really those latter definitions that we have kind of congregated around in our society. That's the understood meaning of myth, that it's not true. But in an ancient context, a myth is simply just a story. And sometimes those stories are true, sometimes they weren't. But that one word doesn't necessarily distinguish whether it's a true event or an untrue event like it does in our modern culture. So, logos and mythos, two words that people within the modern evangelical movement are familiar with, but whose meaning isn't necessarily the same as what it was back in ancient times. So, as I've suggested, there are these two concepts that ancient texts use. The Logos is this reasoned thinking about things. It's thinking according to the laws of logic, what can be induced or deduced from the data that is presented. And in ancient documents, it's the Logos that arrives through the mythos. It's through the story that the Logos arrives. Let me just give you an example, and I'm actually reading from a footnote out of my upcoming book, footnote number 54, and it's there where I suggest that an example is found in the first chapter of John's Gospel of how the biblical authors use these two ideas, the logos and the mythos. The disciple, John, begins his gospel with this statement. In the beginning was the Word, and in Greek, that's the Logos. And then he says, And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And later, in the same chapter, in verse 14, he writes, And the Logos became flesh and tabernacled among us. So what is John doing here? He's taking this idea of the Logos, this divine reason that holds together the cosmos, that philosophers in the Greek culture have been talking about for centuries by this point. John takes that idea 
And in the introduction to his gospel, he uses this well-established philosophic idea of the Logos, and he combines it with language that mimics the Jewish creation account in the beginning. And he uses both of those to tell the mythos, in this case, the true story of how Jesus, the Logos, first created the world and then transitioned from the unseen realm, became flesh, and tabernacled among humanity. John's ability to set this multicultural hook early in his gospel most certainly contributed to the spread of the gospel in the first century Hellenistic world. Got another example that I got from a professor of mine, Dr. Warren Gage, that we're familiar with here on the podcast. He says that Paul tells us in Galatians 2.20 that he has been crucified with Christ. That should sound familiar if you're a Bible reader. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, he says. So let me just ask a question based on the ancient definitions of these two concepts. Is this thing that Paul is presenting, that he has been crucified with Christ, is this a logos or is this a mythos? Well, when Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, it doesn't mean he was literally on the cross with Jesus. He wasn't in the grave with Jesus. So this isn't the mythos. This is a logos. It is the reasoning from the data that Paul has, and it's the conclusion that he comes to, the logos. In other words, Paul is so connected with Christ that his life is propositionally in the tomb with Christ. And Paul suggests that all believers are in the same condition. We're not literally in the tomb. We're not literally on the cross, but we are propositionally in those positions with Christ. So how is this conclusion of Paul's worked out in the story, the mythos of the Bible? And it's here where we go to Acts 12, because Acts 12 takes us into a new world of understanding of the logos and mythos relationship in the Bible. As we get into the chapter, Acts 12, verses 1 and 2, it says that Herod was mistreating the people of God and had James put to death with a sword. And it's a fair question to ask, why does Luke mention the manner of death with a sword? I don't know if you've ever asked that question. There had been another Herod who had killed John the Baptist with a sword. It was at a different time earlier in the story, and it was even a different Herod. But the manner of John the Baptist's death was with a sword as well. So it could be that when Luke is retelling the story in the book of Acts, the manner of death with a sword becomes not just an interesting fact, but it becomes part of the mythos of the Jesus story, how we can be crucified with Christ. The details of the disciples' story become intermixed with the story of Jesus in other ways as well. Let's see what else he does. In verses 3 and 4 of chapter 12, he tells that James has been killed and that Peter is arrested during the days of unleavened bread. Well, that's the time of Passover. Herod put Peter in prison, and in an ancient context, a prison is an underground holding cell. And then in verses 5 and 6, why all the details about Peter in prison? Why mention that he was sleeping between two soldiers? Why does Luke give the details about two chains holding Peter and guards being at the door? Well, part of the reason is Luke is inviting you to get a picture in your mind of what this scene looked like. What does Peter look like while he's in prison? We'll later learn that Peter is nude because he's told to put on his clothes later in the story. And the problem is that we don't read the Bible iconically. And the Bible is filled with iconic imagery. 
The Greek word graphe, it means to write, but it also refers to drawing a picture. And that's what Greek authors did with their words. The way Luke tells his stories, we are being invited to read them through the eye and not just through the ear. As we go through the narrative in verses 7 and 8, he uses the word behold, and that just invites us to see the scene with our eyes. Behold, the angel of the Lord appears, and then Peter is struck on the side. Why do they tell us that he was struck on the side by an angel? And then Peter is told to get up quickly, except it's it's not get up quickly. The Greek word is arise. His chains fall off, and then he puts on his clothes. And as the story progresses, it's the third gate, the iron gate, that opens automatically by itself, and Peter has been rescued from death by the hand of the Lord. But that's not the end of the story. When he's released, what does he do? He presents himself to Mary. Then a woman comes with the report that Peter was released and the church doesn't believe the report of the woman. When Peter is finally let in, he tells them to go and tell the brethren. In Acts chapter 12, Luke presents a mythos. And the mythos is that Peter is going to be like Jesus. James, like John the Baptist, has been killed with the sword. Peter is arrested by a Herod at Passover, delivered to a grave. It's a prison. It's underground. And his posture recalls the cross. He's asleep. It's the imitation of death. And he's between two soldiers. And the angel strikes him on the side and then commands him to arise. Then he's released from that prison. He is led past three gates, and then he presents himself to Mary, and he says, go and tell the brethren. So the logos that Paul presents is that we are crucified with Christ. The mythos is that Jesus's story is retold through the disciples' experiences. And it's the rest of Acts chapter 12 that finishes out the comedic story. And by comedic, I don't mean funny. I mean comedic in the literary sense. Here's the comedy of the story. In verses 20 through 24, Herod clothes himself in royal apparel and speaks to the people who think he's a god. And what happens to him? Then an angel strikes him on the side and he dies and worms come out of him. And my boys loved this story when they were growing up because the worms come out of him and then eat him. So he turns out not to be the God that everybody thought he was. So here's the comedy. The connecting point between these two stories of Peter and Herod is the striking of the angel. The angel strikes Herod, and he dies, and the angel strikes Peter, and he is awakened and able to arise to life. And in contrast, Peter is nude, and the king is in his royal apparel. One of them is appointed to life, the other is appointed to death, and each of those appointments is not with the character that you originally think they would be with. You're thinking Peter's going to die, and Herod will be exalted, but the comedy is those two are switched. And as a Bible reader, you are being invited to compare the two characters and to learn the logos, which is being revealed through the mythos. And this happens throughout the rest of the New Testament. Also in Acts 27 and 28, we'll see it again with Paul Shiprack. Paul says that his life has become like Christ. And it's the New Testament mythos that is establishing the foundation for that logos. But it's not just Paul. All who are crucified with Christ will bear the woundings of Christ. 
He has ordained the cross for each one of us who claims his name. And the promise is that God will show, much like he did here for Peter, and later we'll look at Paul, he'll show his resurrection power through that truth. Well, that's all the logos and mythos I have for today. And just remember, I know it's odd to hear me say the Bible is part of the mythos of the ancient world. And if you reference our modern day understanding of that word, you're going to totally misunderstand what I'm saying. The Bible is a true story. It happened with real people in real time. But the events of that story create a mythos, a story that's true, that also explains the reason why we're all here, the reason for our faith, the reason for our life. And that's the logos and the mythos of the Bible. And if we can understand the ancient context of that, we'll begin to be able to unpack the way the authors unfolded the story to show that we are a part of the story of Jesus. This concept can really change the way you approach the Bible, knowing that the authors are telling the story of the Bible in such a way to teach the truth of the Bible. It's not just the teaching passages in Paul's letters where we learn our theology. It's also weaved into the story of the characters. So as we close today, I'd like to shift gears and ask for your help. I've got approximately four months before I launch my first book, Rethinking Rest. My publisher has told me over and over again that it is time to start promoting right now. And while I mention rating and reviewing at the end of almost every episode, I currently have 16 ratings and three written reviews on Apple Podcasts. And I appreciate all of those. But this suggests just one thing. And it's that most of you don't naturally leave feedback. <laughs> but it would really help me as I gear up to begin promoting my book if you gave me one of those five-star ratings or just took a minute or two to craft a short written review telling why you have enjoyed the content of this podcast. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, you're doing a great job spreading the word. We have new listeners each week in lots of new areas. So keep up the good work. And thanks for listening to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. <laughs>